0: I'm Jordan and I'm Donnie and this is a podcast about the stuff in our New York City apartment
1: how we find it
0: where we put it
1: and why we're into it
0: welcome to apartment 26
1: welcome to another action-packed episode of apartment 26
0: yeah, um, just a reminder that there's a huge social movement going on. And it's not over. Um, and so we wanted to kind of take a pause again from our content and talk specifically about the action items that we discussed in our Black Lives Matter episode and how those things are going.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, because that's important. Yeah. I finished reading How to Be an Anti-Racist which came really fast, honestly, given the fact that it was sold out everywhere. Um, and basically the thesis of it is that, like, there are racist actions and there... Or rather, there are racist ideas and racist policies, and those are the things that create racism, and that the opposite of racism is anti-racism, not not racist. Mm-hmm. And that... Not racist doesn't exist, essentially. Um, and through the lens of my reading, I thought it was a very interesting book. Um, Dr. Kendi is obviously a very smart man, and he's like sharing his personal experiences and also his scholarship on the issue. Then Donnie shared with me um, some Twitter threats that were. <laughs> <coughs> critiques of the book, and that was...
1: <laughs> like, Twitter threads are most of my contribution into this podcast slash relationship. <laughs> um, and those were interesting, because they weren't just from,
0: like, Twitter trolls. They were from mostly black women in the anti-racism space um, yeah, okay. doing this sort of work as well.
1: And academia.
0: And academia. Um, and they had some critiques of the book and were saying that perhaps this binary of like racist policy, racist ideas does not fully encompass everything that's happening. And that also um, they in their anti-racism work have received feedback from white people that it's like, well, I've read how to be an anti-racist, so I can't possibly be racist. Yeah. Um, which was really conflicting for me. And I didn't really know how to come on the podcast and talk about it because through my lens, which is necessarily whiteness, Um, This book seemed like a valuable one to read and one that informed my understanding of anti-racism. And yet I wanted to listen to these women's critiques and validate them um, because they're real, because that's their experience as well. And I think what I came to was really that like, no one of these books can be the answer. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't read one of them and understand all of racism and anti-racism. I can't read five of them and understand racism and anti-racism. It's, I just have to keep going and I just have to keep reading the critiques as well and taking those into consideration. Um, So yeah, I wouldn't say don't read this book because someone critiqued it, but I would say also read it with the understanding that this is not like the universally accepted text on racism and anti-racism, I would say.
1: Yeah that i haven't read the book yet um a couple chapters in to my reading of it enjoying it so far as much as like one can and i'm not sure if enjoy is the word but i'm finding it pretty compelling it reminds me a bit of between the world and me and its non-fiction elements i'm like in the non-fictiony beginning and i think that takes a turn once it like catches up to his present day self, is my understanding?
0: Yeah, there's a strong um, like personal narrative throughout the book, and because hit like the culmination of the book. Spoiler alert: is he starts an anti-racism policy institute. Hmm. And so it's very much about like his personal journey to anti-racism coming together with his understanding of what anti-racist policy can be and why he does that specific work.
1: That's cool.
0: Yeah. One thing that I really liked, I don't know if you're there yet, he has this discussion about like black spaces and how a lot of the white world talks about the idea of integration as like the um, pinnacle of Mm anti-racism. And he's saying like that there is so much value in black only spaces because it allows like even though it is separate from whiteness, it allows for the centering of black narrative. Whereas in like a truly integrated space, there would only be 15% black people and that still wouldn't be like equal for black people because we would see more white people around us than they see black people around them. Mm -hmm. And so, like, the value of these black spaces. um, And I thought that that was a really interesting sort of, like, part of the narrative that wasn't specifically about anti-racist policy necessarily, but was kind of something I hadn't thought about before and something I hadn't read about before.
1: Yeah, for sure. I don't want to speak too much of the book because I haven't read it. I've just read the Twitter threads. Maybe when we do another action item, I'll give more of my two cents. Cool. about the book um yeah so i reserved my thoughts <laughs> to that point so as not to say something foolish
0: cool i also wanted to address white fragility again because if you remember in our black lives matter episode i pretty much gave it a rave um and since then have also read some critiques both that donnie has shared <laughs> for me on twitter but also that i found myself on instagram um Again, from black women in anti-racism work and academics. And the critiques are manifold. Um, One of them that made a lot of sense to me was that like fragility, the word fragility and the concept of fragility is too quaint in some ways to really describe like the larger implications of this thing. Mm -hmm. That like racism is so violent and so detrimental that to call it just a um, product of white fragility seems to minimize it in a way. And I certainly see that. I think I've seen, I don't think I've seen, I have seen a number of comments when I'm looking up reviews of these books and like criticisms of these books where white people seem to like feel the need to talk about their own white fragility. And I think that that seems kind of dismissive, Mm -hmm. you know, um, And so for me, it seems like this concept, whether you call it white fragility or something else, is something to like know about yourself, but like also keep within yourself. (laughs) And when you're talking to people of color, specifically black people, to just say like, sorry, I'm going to do better because it's not about you and whatever your specific feeling is in that situation. The other critique I've read that was really interesting to me is the idea that like, white people should not be profiting off of this work because black people have been doing this work for so long and receiving literally zero dollars for it and, like, at best, death threats. Um, which makes a lot of sense. I don't know... I don't follow Robin D'Angelo, so I don't know what she's doing with the profits from this book, but certainly it's a New York Times bestseller and it was just sold out. And, like, she's made a lot of money from it. Um, and I hope that she's finding a way to put that money back into the community. But, like how to be an anti-racist I think like you said it when I was reviewing the book this can't be the only book you read about it especially because it is about it's by a white person it's about whiteness mm-hmm. um, this can be your entry point into it but it absolutely like can't stop there and we should make sure that we're paying black people for their work as well
1: yeah I yeah, agree I don't have much to add about it I remember reading White for Jersey I think it's a good text I liked it when I read it is interesting. Uh, it reminded me, I think, when we were talking about it the last podcast, I said that by the time I read it, I'd also been pretty deep into Emden, Chris Emden's work with reality pedagogy and his book for white folks teaching the hood and the rest of y'all too, uh, which is a book actually by a black person about the same ideas of white bias, white fragility, but in classroom spaces. So I was pretty. Um, i'm trying i don't want to say i was like pretty attuned as if i somehow more woke (laughs) because even that in of itself is problematic but i had like pretty ideas weren't introduced to you
0: in this text necessarily
1: i had at that point read emden's work twice because i was using it in a lot of like scholarly work i was doing at the time presentations i was giving um so by the time i encountered d'angelo's work i was like oh all right um that being said I feel as if there is value in the work, um, white fragility in particular, but I am a white person saying that, so I acknowledge the complications of that as well. But I don't know, I thought it was interesting. I like a lot of... What I like about the work, D'Angelo's work, is the way she explains... Like the uh, the really in- internalized feelings and sensations, like this idea of like whiteness enforcing the status quo and the kind of social uh, pains you're given when you push against the status quo, the kind of like embarrassment one feels doing something racist and feeling like embarrassed rather than. Outraged at yourself at doing that. And I think that's a really valid thing to like read and internalize and process. And I th- think you can't like read it and be like, oh, that's why I'm embarrassed. That makes sense. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I think that that is part of the problem of the book. A lot of people have and some of what i've been seeing in terms of critique which is is pretty fair i think a a lot of ways media as a whole is ingested especially when it's presented as how two books like white fragility is like how to be an anti-racist is you like you know like you read it like you would a business book and you're like Oh, now I understand how to get more followers on social media. Oh, now I understand (laughs) how to be an anti-racist. And those things are are not true. Um, You know, it is... It's work. It's like the scholarship. And for the record, that's also not true of those fucking business books. (laughs) Like, You can't just read the book and do the thing. But the point of media being put out like this is that one can read or watch or like, see something and feel accomplished just by the reading, watching, or seeing of said thing, when in truth it's like a work, it's a process. Um,
0: Yeah, the way I was introduced to this book was we were doing a diversity training at work that was being led by a black woman. And she said, you know, I can't explain to the people here what it is to be white and what it is to be white and work through racism, but this person can And she showed a video of Robin D'Angelo, and I think that that um, was an interesting way for me to be introduced to it and to want to read the book. And I think also, like, if this is your entry into it, that's great. But then it has to, like, use that as a way to understand how you feel as you start to read black authors on this topic. Yeah. Yeah. You know? That's good. um, Use it to inform your further study.
1: Yeah. For sure. I like that.
0: Also, never tweet, I read White Fragility, so I can't be racist. Yeah. Don't do it.
1: Better yet, if you haven't started tweeting by now, just don't start tweeting. <laughs> <laughs> just take it from me. Don't do it to yourself. <clears throat> uh, so in my reading, action item, I was trying to finish that short story collection. And I did finish it. Um, I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot. For a number of reasons.
0: Could you remind uh, the listeners at home which short story collection we're talking about in case they do not remember? No. Okay. Yeah, uh,
1: <laughs> it is... Uh, I forget the years. Let me go get it. Because right, I want to get the years right.
0: Okay. I'm going to preface it while you go get it. Um, it is a short story collection that was edited by Langston Hughes, meaning that he picked the pieces that went into it. And he doesn't have a story in there, does he?
1: Yeah, he does. Oh, he
0: does. I lied. I didn't know that he was just a short story writer as well.
1: Yeah, he has a whole, uh, well, it's a memoir. But yeah, he wrote a lot of prose. Well, wow, okay. Yeah, he's a dude.
0: Look at me not knowing anything about Langston Hughes.
1: Yeah. Um, oh, now, ugh, it's for a different episode, we got another lime tree, and <laughs> has lost another leaf right in front of us, but. <laughs> That is not the topic of today. <laughs> uh, so, it is The Best Short Stories by Black Writers, 1899 to 1967. Edited with an introduction by Langston Hughes. So, it's pretty cool the time frame uh, that it spans because there were a lot of pretty pivotal social movements within that time, right? You have the Great Migration, you have World War I. Right, and so many stories set in World War One were about well, one about Paris, and then there are two about people who who returned from the war in France, longing to go back to France for the way they were treated there, rather than in America. Then after World War One, I mean, like pretty immediately after World War One, you enter the Harlem Renaissance. Then you have World War Two, and then you have uh, the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah, you know, so it's like writing contextualized I'm kind of far away from the mic, huh? It's like writing contextualized by a lot of pretty pivotal social movements and really pretty pivotal black power movements within American history. But they're not necessarily political in scope. I tend to believe that all writing uh, is political. Even writing that aims to be non-political is political by being non-political. But uh, these stories are just like stories for the most part about life and like love and loss of love and all those things and there's some famous names like people by famous I mean like canonical right people who you are expected to read in high school as I'm flipping through he also has collections of humor these are all the books by Langston Hughes What did a lot of stuff he also wrote biographies what a dude uh, where is this table of contents so you got like your classic, yeah, you like Charles W. Chestnut, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. You got some Tumor, you got Zora Neale Hurston, um, but then Ralph Ellison. Then there are just a lot of writers who I would have never otherwise been introduced to. Um, in particular, quite a few uh, female writers, and so that was pretty cool to encounter that. And even as someone who studied literature in college to be introduced to writers who were on par with white peers at the time, but didn't get quite the recognition. I sent uh, a friend of mine, uh, Sue, who's been on the podcast, who is a pretty uh, experimental out there (laughs) writer, so to speak, Uh, this text by this dude, uh, Ronald, someone, Ronald Fair and let me get to his biography so he's born in chicago 1933 and then his first book a satirical novel entitled many thousand gone appeared in 1965 his second hog butcher in 1966 Uh, his world of nothing two novellas won an award from the national institute of arts and letters in 1970 and we can't breathe an autobiographical novel won the 1972 American Library Association Best Book Award. It's like, dude it's like, pretty accomplished, and his writing was pretty experimental, some of his writing. Um, And he was also, like, a sculptor. He, like, did the thing. And I never heard of him in all the artsy classes, all the artsy shit that I took. And to come across work like that feels pretty important. I also like it um, because it's at, like, a good pace, For me to take in media and ideas Um, kind of referring back to what I was talking about before I think in all of this it's important to do the work you can really pace yourself at like what I like about reading books in particular whether like how-to-ish style books or just like fiction short stories is that i can really pause and process and sometimes literally pause and process and jordan can attest to that <laughs> um, whereas as much as that I, I like haunting twitter whereas when i'm engaging and stuff like that it just comes so fast-paced uh that i really can't do much with it and so
0: And also, it's impossible on Twitter to go back and reference a thing you read, like, 30 minutes ago. You'll never find it again.
1: Yeah, that's also pretty true. You gotta take screenshots to find the Save shit. Um, so I guess my, uh, my my plea to you is that if you do want to start doing this, is to kind of find the, the medium that you can best process, because it's going to bring up a lot of shit in you, um... Like both things you want to question, things you brush up against, things that might embarrass you. And it's important to like find work that lets you pause in that. And maybe that's like doesn't have to be reading that everyone likes to read. It could be film, right? There's so many documentaries being recommended on top of books. and so maybe you want to watch film and that's how you best process. Maybe you want to listen to an audio book. Maybe you do want to read a book. Um, but just find the kind of media that you can best sit in would be my recommendation and so for me that is these kind of fiction books and poetry books like I like the nonfiction fiction how to stuff um, I like it because it reads fast but it doesn't always do it for me the way reading a fictional story and thinking about the emotional truth of a fictional story from someone writing in 1899 how that emotional truth is still resonant today and being able to like sit in that and feel that has a certain power to me that other texts and other media just doesn't quite so i'd say find that for yourself and uh yeah good luck godspeed
0: It's also important because right now there's a lot of focus on specific anti-racism work and people are reading a lot of nonfiction books about anti-racism, which is super important, but it's also important to remember that black people do work in fields that are not about racism or anti-racism and they are artists and they're lawyers and they're like literally anything. And so like to engage with fiction and have a thing that isn't, like, specifically explicitly about that is also super important.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Completely separate and unrelated, something else we touched on in the Black Lives Matter episode was the 15% pledge, which was that movement going around um, I've seen it on Instagram, I don't know if they're on Twitter. Um, Probably. Asking <laughs> major retailers to stock black owned products because there is a 15% black population in the U.S. And at the time that we were talking to you about it, as Donnie pointed out, Sephora was like the biggest um, retailer they had signed on at the time, Um, which is great. But also it was really like early days of their campaign. And now... Um, they actually have West Elm signed on, which is a good confluence of the things that we talk about <laughs> on this podcast. Also, a great news for Bobby, uh, <laughs> which is cool because I um, I know West Elm has done some sustainable stuff, and I would say like I haven't purchased anything sustainable from West Elm because I think that their website is still a little opaque about what is sustainable and how. Mm. Um, But it seems like the sort of company that kind of would invest themselves in this, and I'm really interested to see what sort of movement they make on it, because part of the pledge is transparency. So I would be interested to read whatever they post about their efforts. Um, Something in their post about the pledge that was really interesting to me was that not only are they looking to stock products, but they're also looking to um, increase their retail to corporate pipeline, which I'd never really thought about. Um, Yeah, what does that mean? It means that like if you start working for West Elm in a retail store as a sales associate, there's like a way for you to move up to the point of being in West Elm corporate. It's hmm. um, cool.
1: I mean, if that's the life that you want to lead, yeah, it's cool. It's interesting. I guess I had never thought about that either until just right now that it probably is really difficult to go despite the like mythos that people like to pump. It's probably really difficult in, an, in a corporation. I wouldn't have even thought that
0: like such that. a pipeline existed. And I'm glad that that's something that they're thinking about because I think that's really valuable to have the people who are every day out there selling your products yeah. been involved in the development of said products. So I think that that's an interesting part of their pledge. Um, yeah,
1: it's curious.
0: And yeah, I I haven't purchased anything from West Elm in a while again, because their sustainability is a little opaque, but um, I would love to go buy something at West Elm that I knew supported the things I care about, like sustainability and black owned businesses and things like that. So that's exciting. And a less exciting note, um, Target still hasn't taken the pledge mm. and like really refuses to talk about doing so. And I only bring this up, um, you know, kind of to call them out. Why not? But yeah, also... Fuck you, Target. <laughs> um, like, I guess they did this thing where they started putting a little button on their website for every, like, um, black-owned brand that they sell, which is, like, one of those situations where it's, like, you did the thing, but you won't do the thing people are asking you to do, and that looks sketchy. Mm. Um so, yeah, and I bring it up also because they were kind of the example I used when I talked about this the first time, and I just think, like, someone like Target would be so important in this because you could go your whole life only shopping at Target,
1: wow. you know? Like, a lot of people do and will. Um, and Not as a knock. It's just, like, Target is a pretty
0: it's so easy. prevalent, it's easy so, store. Yeah. yeah, and, like, honestly, like, going to Target feels nice, you know? <laughs>
1: air conditioned (laughs) aisles are big
0: (laughs) and like you know you're gonna get everything you need there and so i just wish that like an experience like that also encompassed social justice yeah (laughs) that's all um so hopefully we can bring you a good update about that someday i um did their little swipe up thing to email target ceo about it nice so yeah
1: that's cool Target, if you're listening, (laughs) I can get it together. Maybe cut out the creepy consumer research too while you're at it. Cool. This next one is another one. Oh my god, about you,
0: fucking ongoing. So yeah, um, I've been waiting for Shavonda Gardner's Patreon to pop up, and, and she's like been kind of a little bit talking about it. Last Wednesday, she like used a screenshot of it mm. and was like, guys, this is coming maybe tomorrow. And it didn't come. And I've been checking her stories religiously. So right now I'm taking the money that I've set aside for her Patreon and splitting it between um, the mental health funds that I'm donating it to. Mm-hmm. But just know I'm still on it. <laughs> I am like waiting because I feel it's coming. Like she's promised it to us. That's so cool.
1: Yeah. I, wonder, I wonder what the hang up is. Like Patreon has had a lot of changes. I wonder if it's on their end. As someone I have a Patreon for a separate project that I work on. Um I know I was kinda of fortunate. I made one just kind of on a on a whim. I was like, Oh, let me put this together and then a month later they're like, Alright, your grandfather in, we're about to start all this new stuff and I was <laughs> like, Oh man, wow, cool. Uh, <laughs> But then, but then recently I had to add like sales tax to it. I just got an email about, uh, like currency conversion with other mm-hmm. countries there having some kind of problem with, which like, like no one from other countries really like interested in what I'm doing. So I don't have to worry <laughs> about that, but like I read the thing and it seems complicated. So I wonder if, if she's just making one, I wonder if it is a, a trickier process than when I went through it. So
0: that's possible the other thing i was thinking too is that people offer content as like the reward for supporting them on patreon and so i don't know what she's planning to offer and like how much she wants to have done at launch Mm. and all of that sort of thing so it kind of seems like also that she's got like a lot of projects going on right now and i don't know how high that ranks like making bonus content when your job is already to create content seems like it would be tedious for (laughs) sure
1: yeah that makes sense probably be tricky
0: Yeah. But I'm watching and I'm waiting. And as soon as it's up, I'm going to let everyone know. Yeah, Yeah. Nice. Yeah. This is also my last um, PSA. I've been seeing this really sad. um, It's the same. Okay. So maybe you can explain, you know, when you're (laughs) watching, yeah, an Instagram story and someone is like sharing a Twitter thread via an Instagram story. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what this is. Okay. And it's a really sad one that's like, everyone wanted to support black businesses until they realized that they didn't have the same production capacity as Amazon.
1: Yeah, I've seen
0: that. Um, And so many people I've recently bought stuff from have been sharing this. And it makes me really, really sad. And I know I talk about this at the end of literally every episode, but just like, don't be a dick. Just don't do it. (laughs) Um, Like, I know personally, there's stuff we bought that... We bought on pre-order, so it hasn't even been made yet. There's stuff I've bought that, like, is going to ship but hasn't shipped yet because they might have run out or Mm -hmm. they might be waiting to do one, like, big batch mailing or, like, God only knows. I have stuff that's shipped and USPS has just, like, stopped updating people on shipping because they don't fucking know. They don't know and it's going to get to us when it gets to us. (laughs) Like, it's in USPS's hands now. (laughs) yeah um yes. which like we all know how i feel about that but i'm not gonna talk about that on this podcast um don't just don't be rude it's so it like kills me because i feel like these are the same people who are like tweeting i would read white fragility and i'm not racist mm-hmm. like it it like goes very hand in hand to me um
1: yeah it's probably it's probably true
0: And, yeah, it just, like, I don't know what else to say about it. I just feel like I have to keep saying it. And I kind of, like, wish a little bit... um, I know that there are some white influencers I follow who have been recommending um, places to people to buy things, and that's been really cool for me because it, like, helps me find people. But I wish that those influencers were now talking about this issue as well Mm. (laughs) and, like, kind of policing their followers a little bit because... Like, if someone listened to our podcast and wanted to buy something from someone, I would directly tell them, as I have directly told them, like, do not DM that person something rude. Yeah. Because <laughs> I can't have that on my conscience, you know? So I wish that there were um, influencers with perhaps a bigger scope than we have doing that as well.
1: <laughs> we will personally text everyone who has listened to our podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now I hear that. I don't think I have anything... Like really too bad. Um, besides, yeah, I mean shipping shipping is slow. Especially for small businesses. Especially for small businesses in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah. I mean <laughs> I don't understand what people I mean, I understand what people expect because there's been certain tiers of service created by mega corporations that just aren't attainable to entrepreneurs and small businesses
0: but you just have to know that you have to know that like amazon sells stuff but like fundamentally their logistics company is their business to get you your things yeah and they're so big that they like threaten and strong arm shippers
1: our next podcast we're actually going to read the s1 of amazon out loud
0: (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i yeah it's like shocking to me if you own an etsy shop you're like printing your packaging labels like off your inkjet printer at home and then walking to usps with your boxes yeah
1: or more accurately you're freaking out because you can't stealth print your shipping labels on your works printer (laughs) (laughs) to then mail out your goods
0: so yeah it's like that's it just don't be rude
1: yeah don't be dicks people thanks for listening to this episode of apartment 26
0: For more info on the stuff we talk about on this episode, check out the show notes linked below and follow us on Instagram at
1: apt26podcast. See you next time.